whatever other leaders do in the referendum campaigns they run in the future in Italy or elsewhere, they should not do what David Cameron did. I mean, David Cameron gave us an example of how not to run a referendum. <laughs> After almost four years since 17 million Brits voted for this outcome, the United Kingdom has finally divorced from the European Union. The ghost of Theresa May desperately haunting Westminster's halls for a deal can now rest as Boris Johnson's government reached an elusive new trade rapport with the EU in the last few days of 2020. Long live Phidias Albion. But this was quite the chaotic three and a half years. We've seen three prime ministers, two general elections, one new Labour leader, countless late-night last-chance summits, and more deadlines being extended than in your introductory EU Studies college course. The sighs of relief in Brussels and Whitehall are music to each other's ears. So, we wanted to do a retrospective on this all. Not so much a chronology of the events, but a focus on what Brexit has taught us on the inner workings of the EU and the UK. If anything at all, what did we learn? To what extent is Brexit a template of future divorces of results? And what light does it shed on the supranational project that continues apace south of the Channel? To answer, we have with us two of the most insightful Brexit watchers in the market, Mish Rahman and Charles Grant. But don't forget to rate and review us. It always puts a smile on our face to see your support. So we're very glad to have with us some of the most insightful Brexit watchers with us today. We have Mid Rahman, who's Managing Director of Eurasia Group and Adjunct Professor at NYU Stern and at Sciences Po. And Charles Grant is one of the co-founders of the Centre for European Research and has been its director since 2008, and he's a former editor of Economist. Thanks a lot for coming. So, um, before, before we get started, I thought, I thought we might cover first the Brexit vote in itself. And retrospectively, um, it seems that the lack of a positive argument for EU membership from the Remain side, in fact, it was a purely defensive campaign, mostly on economics, you know, the Project Fear stuff, uh, and that alone was not enough to fight back against a Leave campaign, which had heavily pushed the issues of sovereignty, of identity. What lessons can pro-European parties and leaders from the continent take from this referendum in case there's another referendum on the EU, you know, let's say in Italy or on a new treaty or on something like that? Thank you, Francois. And uh, it's great to uh, be, be with you all. Um, you know, look, I think... Um, if anything, the events that have transpired since 2016 have reinforced my scepticism about about referenda. And I think one of the key one of the key conclusions I draw from the the entire um, um, debate is is the need to build a very strong pro EU narrative over time, and to do that for a long time uh, before holding one of these uh, uh, votes, so that. Um, you know some of the some of the more tangible benefits and costs of membership are are clearer in the public's imagination, and I just don't think that was the case through the referendum com- campaign. Now, 
even that may not be enough to guarantee uh, uh, you know, a vote that takes place on the basis of a real understanding of the facts. And you know, to give you a good example, think about the dynamic in Italy right now. You know, Italy has just won um, uh, up to 168 billion in loans and grants from uh, the European Union in the context of this recovery fund. No, that's... Um, you know, kind of nine, eight, eight, eight percent, nine, ten, ten and a half percent. Sorry, if its GDP will be delivered to it through this instrument at the European level, and yet that's not had a, a, a even a dent, frankly, on on the opinion polls around EU membership or governing parties. So, so even when there is a very positive story to tell about Europe, and this is a good example of that, it hasn't had a, a, an impact on the domestic debate at all, which suggests you know the, the problem one of the problems potentially with referenda is if you do ask a question you get a completely different answer because it's so hard to ground the facts um the french i think uh, context is a really is, is another really good example you know emmanuel macron has done a lot on europe and europe is a very big part of his political identity and yet you know, if you look at opinion polls around kind of knowledge of EU affairs, interest in EU affairs, even in a country like France, that's absolutely central to membership. The numbers are the numbers are astoundingly low. So there's always a risk, I think, when you hold a popular vote on the Europe question, you get a response to a completely different question, which is largely motivated by domestic uh, factors. And I think, you know, war a referendum to be held in the future, even with a long campaign, it's not clear you would get an answer to the question that's being posed. You're absolutely right, Midge. But uh, I think uh, whatever other whatever other leaders do in the referendum campaigns they run in the future in Italy or elsewhere, they should not do what David Cameron did. I mean, David Cameron gave us an example of how not to run a referendum campaign. He focused on a lot of economic data, uh, a lot of a lot of scaremongering, saying if you if you vote to leave, then GDP will shrink by X percent. And he, there was nothing positive about why the EU was a good thing. It was all if you leave the EU, the world, will, the roof will fall in, the world will end, sort of thing. And people weren't convinced by the scaremongering. There was nothing positive on why what opportunities the EU gives people. Nothing, nothing. He didn't focus on the hearts and hearts and minds at all, really. But I think the short answer to the question, to the question is, you, politics is about emotion. Referendums are about emotion. If you if you if you focus on economic data and GDP figures, you're bound to lose. What you need to do is appeal to people's hearts, hearts, and their emotions, and that's what the Leave campaign did very well in the British referendum, and the Remain campaign completely failed to do. Yeah, and I would add to what Charles has said. I I fully agree, and I and I'd say you know I think if you if you the polls look good for Remain ahead of the campaign, and as soon but as soon as the issues were unpacked, you know decades I think frankly of negative press and misinformation came to the surface and as Charles correctly says if you try and push back against that with facts that are closer to the truth uh, than what certainly what Vote Leave was putting out they, that still tended to sound negative project fear as Charles is saying and for that reason it would be right to avoid that um, uh, going forward if it would take place in another country. Isn't there also kind of a, a demographic lesson which is in, in, in the UK for example Pensioners tend to be somewhat worse off in the general population, and we know for a fact pensioners, you know, in in, in democracies, you tend to represent a fair share of electorate, you know, somewhere between thirty five percent to forty five percent, and depends on which European country. Uh, would the fact that, for example, in France and Italy, uh, pensioners tend to be at least 
as well off or better off in the general population, does that solidify the system against a populist shakeup? Uh, because these pensioners have more to lose in case of a you know populist, let's flip the table uh, scenario. This time. Um, I, I, I don't really accept the premise of the question, Francois, I'm afraid, because in Britain, pensioners do quite well relative to other age, age cohorts in British society. Pensioners have done have seen a growth in incomes in the last 10 or 20 years, while other, other groups have not, except for the very rich, but that's not, not an age cohort. Um, so I, I, and also, because I think it's because British pensioners have a guaranteed rise to their pensions every year in real terms. They, they don't depend on economic activity. They don't depend on the state of the economy. They know their incomes are going to go on doing fine thanks to the state. So many of them thanks to the state. So I think that one of the reasons why pensioners were happy to take the risk of voting for Brexit, and they did in large numbers, is because if the economy goes down the plug hole, they're, they're, they don't pay much of a price for it because their pensions are guaranteed. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, Francois, similar, similarly to Charles, I think, you know, the real question to my mind is why older voters in the UK, Eurosceptic, would the young overwhelmingly remain, even to this day, and why older voters on the continent are more afraid of Eurosceptic politics. Right. Whereas, you know, look at someone like Marine Le Pen, for instance, has historically done quite well with young French voters. I don't have a good answer to that question. Um, but but like Charles, I, I'm not sure the premise of the question is one I agree with. Great. Well, well um, I, I, this is this is really helpful in terms of kind of a, an overview of, of, of some of the electoral, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, underlying factors that we saw play out in the referendum. I, I'd like to turn here now to a question uh, looking at the EU's future in the wake of the uh, in the wake of Brexit itself. Um, and, and just a reminder, audience, this may be released uh, perhaps a, a few days after this whole thing is melted out. But uh, we're, we're talking just in the wake of really a, 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 a peak of kind of media scrutiny uh, of uh, the, the UK and the EU in the light of uh, vaccine rollout, right? We saw uh, just, just this week, we saw AstraZeneca is, is having a really hard time delivering uh, the kind of the vaccine, uh, the, the batch of vaccine doses that it committed uh, to, that it was committed to delivering uh, under its uh, agreement with the commission. And, and meanwhile, Britain is doing fantastically well, I think objectively. Um, but the reason I'm, I'm asking this is because um, you, you have, you know, a, a contingent of, of Brexiteers in the media thumbing the, their noses at the EU saying, look at this hyper-regulatory a hegemon that is, uh, you know, doing really badly with vaccines and Europeans are dying. Meanwhile, uh, the UK opted out of the joint uh, program for, for vaccination and, and we're doing a lot better. And, and the, the reason I want to draw this parallel between Brexit and the vaccines is because it looks like to a lot of people, certainly Brexiteers, but also people on the continent, it looks like the EU is kind of chronically unable or has a really hard time to learn from, from some of its, uh, let's call them, um, errors or, or kind of the reason, some of the reasons that propelled 17 million Brits to vote for Brexit. It seems like, you know, it, it, there is very uh, little capacity for, for self-criticism and, and you're seeing some of that with, with the vaccination. So just as a general question, can we get maybe uh, Charles first and then Mish or vice versa, whoever wants to go first, uh, tell us a little bit about how you see the Brexit, Brexit changing the EU self-image. Do you think we're going to see a more uh, an EU more kind of assertive and sure of itself and of its premises, or do you think that we're eventually going to have to face up to the reasons why why Brexit happened? Well, speaking as somebody who supported Remain quite strongly, obviously we serious Remainers have to accept that EU makes mistakes, uh, as, as it's not doing very well on the vaccine rollout without question. But on, the, on your bigger question about whether the EU has learned any lessons from the Brexit referendum, I would say not enough lessons. I think that... Um, there wasn't a sufficient self-criticism after the British voted to leave. 
there wasn't a lot of questioning. Uh, I think politically the EU feels quite self-confident. Indeed, Brexit probably helped to create a bit of momentum for integration in areas like defence and, and indeed the Eurozone. Not that the British could have really stopped Eurozone integration, but psychologically the British absence made everybody think that they needed to do more. And it probably, we've seen since the British left, you know, the Eurozone starting to integrate with the creation of the recovery fund. So I think, and also we're seeing Macron pushing the concept of strategic autonomy, which is more defence integration. So I would think politically, the EU is more self-confident post-Brexit. Uh, we see, particularly, we've seen the French and the Germans more influential in Europe, and they have a, they believe together that the EU needs to be more integrated. But economically, I see a strange lack of self-confidence, a strange uh, wariness, a fear, a fear of competition in the EU, which is one of the reasons why in the in the Brexit talks, the EU pushed so hard on the so-called level playing field provisions, the, the worry that Britain would become a hyper-competitive Singapore on Thames style economy, slashing regulation just off the shore of, it, of the continent, pulling investment into, into the United Kingdom. So I think there's a lack of self-confidence. I think the British, the, 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 the British exit from the EU has made others fear for their economic model. And I'm a little bit surprised. I think the European economic model is actually fairly, fairly successful. I'm a little bit surprised that European leaders and, and lacking in self-confidence feel that they need to impose these level playing field provisions on Britain post-Brexit to ensure that we didn't become too competitive. I mean, what, what, what's wrong with a bit of competition? Surely Europe, Europe continent would be better off if there's a bit of competition from the Brits off their shore. So I have a slightly different view, I think, than Charles on this. I think, um, and I'll talk about the vaccines in a second uh, separately, so, so as not to conflate these issues, because I do agree with the question that on the vaccine rollout, the Europeans have, have are really in a in a difficult place, and um, um, you know have, have really made, frankly, a big mess of where they are, and that has big implications, arguably down down the road. But but on the, on the broader economic question, that kind of holding for the vaccine, you know, I think actually there is a there's quite a lot of self confidence. You no, know, the recovery fund I think is a very very big deal. You know, for the first time. The Commission is going to borrow unprecedented amounts of money and transfer a large amount of that income to high debt, high deficit member states that don't really have the space or uh, the ability to borrow uh, from the capital markets in, you know, in, in, as, as ambitiously as that. Of course, interest rates are historically low and the ECB is, is facilitating that. But at some point, um, you know, this question of the, the very elevated debt levels in Southern Europe and elsewhere is going to become a problem. And the recovery fund is one response to that problem, um, which was not at all a given, uh, you know, even quite late into last year. And and now, as I say, you know, you do you do have this huge instrument that is going to deliver, you know, up to 10, 11 percent of member states GDP. Um, now, if, 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 if this works out and you begin to see meaningful reforms that facilitate green and digital transition, this is absolutely, to my mind, kind of the beginning of a permanent transfer union that will really address some of the big institutional gaps and problems that underpin the euro area. This big question that's always asked in the UK about what's the long-term sustainability of the eurozone? Well, the, the seeds to addressing that question arguably lie in this agreement that was struck late last year, and of course it was messy and there was compromise and there were last-minute hurdles to overcome with Budapest and Warsaw over rule of law, but the fact is the vehicle has been put in place, established, and, um, um, you know, will we'll be up and running later this year. You know, to complement that, there's also, I think, much more thinking around uh, the institutional fiscal architecture in the euro area and the EU and how to design a set of rules 
that take into account the post-pandemic reality. You know, the three and the 60% and how they're implemented don't make sense anymore. And is there a way in which that can be meaningfully reformed? And I'm, and I'm actually quite optimistic. I think the outcome of the German elections with a leader like Armin Lachette and Macron, who's still likely to win the French presidential elections, I think the two of them together could actually provide lead economic leadership to Europe in a way that sub- sustainably and meaningfully advances this this concern that's always hung over the eurozone around fiscal policy, you know, rules that don't make sense, that are too pro-cyclical, that don't focus enough on investment or growth. I think a lot of those problems may be addressed in in over the course of the next like 12 to 15 months. So I'm quite, you know, I think uh, a bit more optimistic perhaps about the economic outlook, albeit there are meaningful challenges. Um, on this question of Bre- the, the kind of the narrower question of Brexit and what the EU learned or didn't on the back of that, I would I would agree with Charles. I think um, there wasn't really any strategic thinking about what to do now the UK has decided to leave and how to manage the process with the UK. There was a very defensive reaction. You know, we often think about the European Council kind of, you know, these are philosopher kings. They sit around and come up with this big strategic vision. I think the reality is actually much more messy, a lot more incoherent, you know, much more low than high politics. And I think you saw that very explicitly in Brexit, you know, a very defensive um, uh, um, kind of, you know, articulation of the EU's interest, protecting the single market, but not really any forward innovative thing, forward leaning innovative thinking about how to accommodate a big member state, ex now member state on our on our borders, you know, and, and maybe how to create new templates or new models that accommodate the UK and and some of the gaps that will exist as a result of the UK's departure, not least in foreign and security policy. And I don't think that thinking has happened and I don't think it's going to happen going forward, primarily because of politics in the Tory party and the Labour party. You know, after, after having done the deal, the two sides are tired. They don't really want to spend a lot of time talking to each other. I think Boris Johnson has every motivation to keep Brexit alive as a dividing issue that puts up Keir Starmer under tremendous pressure and you can see the way Keir Starmer's leaning you know he's already ruled out free movement he's got his eye on potentially you know ruling in the context of a minority government in 2024 he needs to get the red wall back you can't do that by proposing more formal or closer institutional links with Europe so there's not really there there wasn't the conversation in 2016 to 20 and I don't think there's space to have the conversation over the next several years either I've not addressed the question of the vaccine. I've been talking a lot. So, Charles, I'd like you to come in, perhaps, and then we can go back to the vaccine question in a second. You can, uh, if you're calling for an assist from from Charles, uh, Mitch, to, to, to get yourself out of trouble, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get Charles in on the vaccines here in, in, in just a second. And I, I thought what you just said, uh, Mitch, was was profoundly uh, revealing. And I think you you've both pointed to a number of issues where we have seen uh, the EU gain some of what, what uh, Charles was calling self-confidence, or at least a, a more deliberate way of going about some of the, the uh, some of the longer term challenges. And, and uh, that's certainly one, uh, one uh, takeaway that we're, we're already see, seeing uh, play out here after Brexit. I, I wanted to maybe, um, precisely on the issue of, of uh, self-confidence, I mean, uh, what, what Charles calls self, self-confidence was throughout the whole process of the negotiations, uh, precisely a huge sticking point, one that the Brexiteers pointed to was saying, look at this vindictive uh, block that is exacting uh, punishment, payment 
uh, on Britain for essentially uh, ducking its its uh, its model and and, uh, and 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 this sets a really bad precedent because what the EU is doing is is essentially making any other uh, uh, the, the incentives for other countries to follow suit uh, essentially uh, uh, making those uh, too um, too expensive. But um, I, I wonder, kind of. Um, it, well, and, and the reason why, why we wanted to bring up the issue of the vaccines is whether uh, that sort of attitude is becoming costlier than ever now that we're talking about European lives with the issue of the vaccines. But that, that, was, that was kind of the context for why we, we wanted to bring up the vaccines. And to, to, another, um, to another issue, um, uh, Charles, you were pointing out to uh, defense and foreign policy, uh, and, and that's certainly an issue where with the UK out, uh, you know, we have seen sort of a tilting of the balance towards more of the French uh, paradigm of a, of a strategically autonomous um, Europe, right? I think uh, with the Brits out, I think it's been a lot easier for Macron to kind of drum up his his whole uh, idea. Uh, what are some of the other issues where you think Brexit has rebalanced uh, Europe, where countries have gained influence over others uh, in, in other areas? Um, I, I think foreign policy strikes uh, me certainly as, a, as an issue where there has been a rebalancing, but what are some, what are some other examples? Well, I think I think Brexit has led to a strengthening of the Franco-German leadership in the EU. I mean, they were strong already, but nobody can really challenge them now because the, the Spaniards and the Italians are too weak in their economies. Italy's politically unstable. Poland can't challenge France and Germany because it's in, in, it has antagonistic relations with lots of countries on lots of issues. So France and Germany are in the lead. But within that tandem, I see France becoming really top dog in the next few years. And we do, we do see a more French EU emerging, I believe, part, partly because... Angela Merkel is retiring and Germany is going to be distracted by um, it's, it's the election of a new chancellor, which won't be, we won't get a new government in place probably till the end of 2021. Macron has a lot of ideas, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, and he gets people to sing to his tune. He's got the European Council president, Charles Michel, who's a close ally, von der Leyen running the commission as an ally, the Spaniards and the Belgians and others are his allies, the Germans are often his allies. And so we're seeing an EU now that is a bit more French, meaning a bit more protectionist, um, we see that in some of the some of the issues on on vaccines, trying to restrict exports of vaccines. Uh, we see um, trade policy being le less less economically liberal. The French are, you know, won't ratify the EU trade agreement with Mercosur in South America. They don't really like trade agreements, rather like Democrats in the US. And, and they talk a lot about strategic autonomy, which is it doesn't just mean becoming self-sufficient on defence and foreign policy. It also means being self-sufficient on technology and not being dependent on others for energy, for example. Um, French are very keen to that Britain, should, that, sorry, that the EU should develop its own big, uh, big, big tech companies of the sort that Silicon Valley has, and they hope that rules on data privacy can do that. So we're seeing, a, in general, a much more French EU emerging, I think, and uh, that's one of the consequences of Brexit. I'm going to be boring and and agree with Charles. I think you know, um, I I fully agree with that view. I think you know, France is only military power really now in the EU, permanent UN member. No coincidence, I think, that the byword in the Elysee and, frankly, in many European capitals and in Brussels is, quote-unquote, strategic autonomy or sovereign Europe. You know, that's a, that's an EU that focuses much more on geopolitical agency, foreign policy, defence. It, it's an EU that has those issues at its nucleus, and it's, I think, no, uh, no coincidence that those are the areas where the French have a comparative and a competitive advantage compared to Germany. So I, I, I do see that, um, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, a more French-leaning EU emerging. Germany, for its part, you know, has always tried to balance 
its interests with the US transatlantic alliance via the Moscow in Eastern Europe, but even arguably the Germans now are even leaning into France and Southern Europe in a way they haven't previously done. And I think, you know, that the, the comprehensive agreement on investment is a very good example of that. You know, that agreement with China on the heels of Biden coming to power is about the strategic autonomy agenda. It's about the Europeans saying, look, you know, we are going to be geopolitically relevant and not simply be kind of price takers in a world where the rules are set by the US and China, but we have our own agency, our own values and our own political preferences. And this is what we're going to do about it. So the Recovery Fund is another good example where I think Berlin really moved in a fairly meaningful way in the direction of Macron. So I think, you know, Macron can claim to win where his predecessors failed. I don't think Sarkozy was anywhere as near as successful as kind of moving the needle in Germany. I don't think Hollande was either. Some of the shift in Germany may be because of Brexit maybe because of concerns about at the time Donald Trump and what 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 you know uh, what what follows in his in, in his aftermath. But I, I I do think you're looking at a, at a European Union where the French are more influential and where French ideas are having more impact and importantly more impact in Berlin. So let's move on to the to the negotiations in themselves and let's look a little bit of, about the, of the red lines and how they've changed over the past four years. Uh, Charles, you mentioned a little bit about how one red line which hasn't changed on the European side was a level playing field, which was protected with, at times, a bit of paranoia, but with a lot of uh, intent, for sure. Um, What red lines were uh, on each side settled? You know, uh, what were the red lines for the Brits in 2016 and what were the red lines for the Europeans? And how have they changed and what does that reflect about the um, uh, political landscape in these countries and in these zones and how they've evolved over the past four years. Yeah, um, look, I, I think just to come back to this point on the level playing field, I'll wrap that into my answer, right? Um, I have a slightly different view than Charles, I think. I think part of the reason Europe is a lot more self-confident now um, is, is partly because kind of through this process with the UK and the divorce, European officials themselves came to appreciate the benefits of membership in a way they themselves did not fully appreciate or understand when the UK was a member state. The process of the divorce, I think, very clearly articulated some of the very explicit and tangible benefits of membership in a way, as I say, kind of officials themselves didn't fully understand or appreciate. And of course, as a result, there's a desire to protect those um, benefits and those interests for members. And you know, the internal market is something of an ecosystem. You know, the level playing field, free movement, supranational enforcement, by the European European Court of Justice, these are all very necessary ingredients to ensure that market functions well. And it's not clear to me that enabling a strategic competitor, you know, on the border, to to be able to compete with, um, you know, the EU, uh, would would necessarily be in the single markets or the EU's long term interests. You no, know? so. Um, you know, not respecting the level playing field, not having to deal with the problem of supranational enforcement by the ECJ. Um, you, you know, I, 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 I'm a bit more sympathetic, I think, to, to the concerns in Europe about what that would have meant about the the utility of the single market over the very long term. So I don't think the EU's core red lines changed much. I think it was very much about protection of the single market and um, you know, they, they reflect that in the trade and cooperation agreement. Um, you know, there is, there is, there is you know, at the margin, a bit of flexibility about how present the ECJ is in the final deal. Um, 
you know, notwithstanding what I'm saying about the level playing field, we've got to acknowledge that Europe did move off dynamic alignment. You know, they 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 were opposed to managed divergence. I remember discussions with senior officials in Berlin and Paris. They hated the idea of managed divergence because it just cre- you know how do you measure divergence? And once you define how you measure it how do you then decide what the hell you're going to do about it it just creates a context for non-stop friction with the UK so they absolutely were opposed to this notion of managed diversion that and, and that's absolutely where we've landed so that does reflect I think big movement on the EU side notwithstanding I think the need to fundamentally protect the core tenets of the of the single market um so you know I I, I do think I do think they they did move very quickly on the UK side. I think they've they've understood that um, the relationship will require cooperation and collaboration. You know, the EU is not going anywhere, as it were, and consultation and partnership is going to be required. Just look at the partnership councils and the infrastructure that's now going to underpin the trade and cooperation agreement, arguably even more onerous and more binding than than membership. So, yes, the government is free. Yes, the government is sovereign. But that comes with a price, uh, whether it whether it's the price of maintaining the trade agreement and making it work effectively, whether it's the price of divergence in the form of retaliatory tariffs, uh, that dialogue, that cooperation, that collaboration is going to be required with the EU side going forward. Just to um, to finish on what Midge says about the level playing field. Um... Uh, I mean, I, I have a slightly different view. I think I, th- I accept that the EU's concerns were genuine. It wasn't just, they weren't just being nasty for the sake of it or just to make the British feel difficult when they went on about the level playing field. But I think the EU, the EU got a, went a bit over the top. Um, I mean, the EU has a huge trade surplus with the UK, something like 80 billion pounds a year pre-COVID. Uh, and that suggests that the level playing field is actually tilted the other way, if it's tilted anywhere at all, because the EU can export its manufactured goods very easily to the UK and still can with the agreement we've seen and while the, the EU never never really opened up its services markets very well where um where Britain is strong and indeed now Britain is completely excluded from the EU services markets post the, the TCA agreement. So I think that I think also I think the, the as I think Midge would agree the deal we have got makes Britain rather a less competitive place in many ways. It's a less attractive place to invest because it's partly cut off from European markets now, all of which will make Britain less competitive. Plus the the real point for me is political. I just think if you look at the state of the Tory party today any idea that this this Tory government, even a, a led by right wing, relatively right wing people who are in senior positions, is going to go around slashing environmental and social rules, is, is is for the birds. It's not going to happen because Tory MPs don't want that, and British voters, particularly Tory voters in the north of England, the Midlands, don't want it either. So I think Singapore, in terms, is a figment of of the EU's imagination. But I understand it's it's a, it's genuinely genuinely thought. Just one point on the red line shifting. Of course, we, we forget, but Britain shifted dramatically during the course of the negotiations. First. With, Theresa May's government going for a uh, a deal that would have relatively close economic ties to the EU, at least for goods. Uh, She was trying to remove friction from the border, hence her her scheme to put Britain in a kind of customs union with the EU and to put virtually in parts of the single market for goods. Um, Boris Johnson, she also wanted close ties on foreign and defence policy as well, by the way. Boris Johnson went for a much harder Brexit, but even even he evolved. When he first became Prime Minister in the October 2019, he produced the political declaration on the future relationship. He was actually, that was that suggested quite a close relationship in certain areas, not just foreign and defence policy, but some economic areas too. And then when he came back to with a big electoral majority in December 2019, he decided to go for a harder Brexit. And 
a lot of the things that have been written into the political declaration on the future relationship were abandoned. He went for a, a very hard Brexit. But that to me is one thing that the British people don't even understand is they're going for the hardest of possible Brexits, which is not what many of them voted for. And they, as yet, I just haven't really realised what's happening, but they, they will wake up and find it's a very, very hard Brexit, which is rather damaging to their economy, I feel. And just if I can just compliment what, sorry, just very quickly, just to, because it's, I, I fully agree with what, with what Charles has said. And I think, you know, ultimately, um, yeah, I think Theresa May and, and, and her objective was, was, I think, ultimately one that prioritised the integrity of the union. You know, it was about at all costs avoiding a border in the Irish Sea and the way the government obviously decided to square that with the need to keep, uh, you know, no border on the island of Ireland, preserve an invisible border there was to, to, to uh, you know, agree to a UK-wide customs union, de facto UK-wide customs union. Um, and I think Boris Johnson came to power and the priority was completely different. It was about ensuring the UK is not a rule taker. Uh, now that Brexit is going to be delivered. And of course, any version of soft Brexit on some level would result in uh, the House of Commons and UK Parliament subordinating themselves to EU rulemaking. And I just think Boris Johnson, for his government and his perspective and worldview, that's just not a a sustainable long-term equilibrium. It would be a model that would ultimately break at some point because Europe would do something that the UK side would, would perceive is ultimately not in its national interest and the model would break. So he prioritised sovereignty and the ability to diverge. And really, the only way you can do that, if you're going to implement Brexit, is to do it through hard Brexit, because then you're not tied into the EU's regulatory orbit in any form or fashion. I mean, there's a level playing field, yes, but obviously that's a lot less binding than membership of either a formal customs union or indeed single market, where the provisions would have been much harder. So Boris prioritised independence and autonomy over the integrity of the union. And I think a lot of those chickens are going to come home to roost, frankly, over the course of this or the next parliament, where I do think the odds of an independence referendum in Scotland are very, very substantial indeed. Um, so, you know, it was it was a, a different set of political priorities, I think, that uh, the, Tory, uh, the different Tory governments took to the negotiation. So I have qu- one question about what the Brexit negotiations and debate and tensions have done on the question of European identity. Because one thing that struck me is the past four years have led a lot of Remainers to identify very strongly with the EU and get familiar with institutions on a larger scale than what we could witness, for example, in in France or Spain or Italy. Uh, Does the EU need that kind of conflict a kind of vigorous European debate to actually create a European identity. And a kind of a side question that goes with it is, what is going to be the space for the English language and for English-speaking think tanks in the creation of this European identity now that the UK is out of um, uh, out of the EU? How, how, how is that, that going to work? Charles, you should take this, I think, given, but, um, given you're sitting on top of the CR. That's a really interesting question. Well, on the, on the last point... Um... I do think it is quite interesting that although the British have always, even when they were members, were a little bit semi-detached from the EU, that the Brussels think tanks and the Brussels media is largely Anglophone. I mean, the Financial Times, The Economist, uh, the, the Brussels think tanks are mostly, they're not all of them now, led by British people and always have been led by British people. So the, the intellectually, the British have had a huge influence on the EU, even if their government has been rather semi-detached from it. And I don't see why that shouldn't continue to some degree because um, there are still a lot of British people, uh, myself included and uh, Midge included, who are very interested in the EU, have views and 
and have can hopefully produce some serious ideas. As for what it's worth personally, I mean, my own think tank, the one I direct, the Centre for European Reform, uh, will continue to have offices in Brussels, Berlin and London, and we'll continue to do most of our work on on coming up with ideas and policies for reforming the EU so that it works better, as well as do, obviously doing some work on the UK EU relationship and Brexit hasn't really made a difference to our mission. Those those two missions, UK EU relations and the future of the EU itself, are still our core missions, post Brexit and, and pre Brexit. Um, uh, and I do think on the on the, the, the broader question about um, whether you need kind of conflict to generate a pro European identity, I guess probably you do. Um, certainly, there's pro Brexiteers have formed a kind of popular movement in Britain. At least they did during the Brexit negotiations that had never been seen before. Probably more people demonstrated, I think there were a million people on one occasion, for, for the EU in Britain than any, any other country in the EU itself. And the only kind of comparable uh, example is Ukraine, when during the argument just before the Russians invaded the Donbass, there were demonstrations of huge numbers of Ukrainians with European Union flags. Um, uh, so, I, but I, but I think I still think it's very hard for the EU itself, with its existing member states, to generate large amounts of controversy and emotion and so on, because the EU, for all its whether for good and for evil, doesn't actually do very much that affects people's lives on things like education, health, taxation, defence. Most of the key decisions are taken by member state institutions. Now that is changing a bit with the eurozone. The currency in people's pocket is. Is, is a European currency. Even on, on the pandemic, obviously, the EU's begun to play a little bit of a role and it's got into trouble because it hasn't played that role terribly successfully in the last few weeks and months. Then I guess that with the green deals emerging, EU rules on carbon emissions will start to mean that you know this Polish coal mine has to close or this person has to sell his diesel car because it pollutes too much. So the EU's beginning to to kind of influence the, the nooks and crannies of everyday life, but only from a very low level. So I, I think most people still find the EU quite boring and quite uninteresting and quite technocratic. And even if they, whether they like it or dislike it, they're not going to feel very emotional about it, unless, in, as in the case of Brexit, you realise it's existential and your very idea of the kind of country you live in and its place in the world and whether it's an outward or inward-looking country starts to come onto the agenda. And then, then large emotions can be generated. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Charles, I think. I, you know, um, I think the, the EU has a massive asymmetry problem. And, and by that, I mean... When things go well, it's uh, you, know, it, you know most of the time it's kind of national politicians that will will uh, you know kind of stand in front of that uh, victory and 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 capitalize uh, on that victory. And Europe is rarely as as an entity uh, re- rewarded or, or, or uh, you know um, the recovery fund is a good example of this. Whereas I say, you know, this was a massively historical and unprecedented move that does, you know, um, uh, deliver meaningful amounts of money to member states to facilitate economic recovery. And you've not really seen it move the needle in a meaningful way in the member states that are important uh, uh, and that have, have been struggling with, whether it's membership of the euro area, historical euro scepticism, um, but when, when Europe does things badly, uh, now the vaccine is a very good example of that, where, you know, the European Commission is responsible for a very small part of what's gone wrong, the procurement strategy, where it did bet on the wrong vaccine, yes, and, you know, the process, it was too cautious and too slow, and the regulators have been very deliberate. But there's also a big chunk of what's gone wrong at the national level in terms of the the um, uh, the strategies that different member states have articulated to roll out the vaccine, and yet 
the European Union is 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 blamed and held responsible for the fact this has 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 really gone badly. So when things go well, national politicians tend to take the credit. When things go badly, they evade accountability, and the institutions in Brussels are blamed. And that's a structural asymmetric issue. There's not really clear answers to how you overcome that. So. I think Europe is always on some level going to be on the back foot in normal times. And, 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 and for that reason, yes, you know, the conflict with the UK and the process of divorce was helpful in that it very clearly articulated, as I say, some of the benefits of membership that are taken for granted. And it allowed people to see, um, you know, uh, w- whether it's friction at the border or uh, there's less, less consumer choice or rising prices Whatever, whatever the implications may be now, the deal has landed and the UK has left. I think the need for Europe to kind of point to the UK as an example of what happens when you leave and, you know, can all these invisible benefits of membership are not actually invisible. So be aware, I, I think, is going to be a characteristic that the EU side needs to lean on on some level because um, you know, it's too easy to blame the EU and the institutions otherwise. Yeah, and um, we're so glad, uh, Mitch, that you, you were able to get in some of your um, to squeeze in some of your thoughts on the vaccine uh, rollout, uh, the, the the botched already botched uh, vaccine rollout, and uh, that's really going to be very prescient by the time that this episode is released. But uh, just as we finish on this sort of forward-looking note, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about this, the the other kind of big. Um, uh, 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 issue that, that lies in the future that a lot of people, a lot of young people in the, the UK are, are asking themselves, and we're going to ask you just in the remaining uh, two to, to five minutes that we've got left, um, what's uh, whether it is realistic that we're going to see, um, uh, you know, a, 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 the potential, the political um, offer of another referendum uh, for reaccession, uh, you know, happening in, in the next, say, say 10 years. Well, um, I think the chances of a Another referendum on British membership in 10 years are approximately zero for two very simple reasons. One is that uh, in order to have a referendum, you need a government that wants to rejoin the EU. And uh, no Tory government in the next 20 years are going to do that, as far as I can see, because the Tories don't like the EU at all. Labour won't offer a referendum either, because although Labour is quite a pro-EU party that regrets Brexit hugely in in most respects, uh, Keir Starmer wants to be Prime Minister. In order to be Prime Minister, he's going to have to appeal to the voters in the north of England and the Midlands who switch to the Tories at the last general election, partly because partly because the Tories promised to get Brexit done. And Keir Starmer has been very careful not to come over as too pro-European, too Remainerist since he became party leader, because he knows he can't be prime minister if he only appeals to urban liberal professional types who lament Brexit hugely. So that I don't see Keir Starmer proposing to rejoin the EU. Now, he may propose to improve the terms of the deal. He may want to, for example, rejoin a customs union or something like that. that, that that's, that's, that's quite plausible, but I don't see a Labour or a Tory government wanting a referendum. And there's a second reason. It's very simple. If, if, if I'm wrong and Keir Starmer did try and rejoin the EU with a referendum, I'm afraid the EU would say no. The EU would say no for the very simple reason that it wouldn't want the British to kind of come in and out of the EU every five years they wouldn't have time to do to do anything else in Europe except to worry about Brexit or re-Brexit for the third fourth time. Because so long as the opposition party to a Keir Starmer government would be the Conservatives committed to leaving the EU as soon as they got back into power, that would be a nightmare for the EU. Only if there's a national consensus in favour of membership across you know, both the main parties, then the EU would say, OK, well, let's think about it. Let's talk about membership, perhaps. But until there's such a national consensus, which I fear won't exist in my professional lifetime, that you would say no to any attempt to... Yeah, I'd, you know, I, I'd obviously agree with everything that everything Charles has said. I think, you know, um, 
under a Tory government, uh, whether it's you know kind of this parliament or let's say next parliament with a with a let's say a Rishi Sunak prime minister or even a Boris Johnson prime minister or another leader, very hard to believe uh, they're going to move uh, in a meaningful way beyond the deal they've struck. You know, kind of the the objective now is to articulate. Uh, you know, areas of divergence where the UK is able to do things differently and, and, and substantively so, you know, what, what it wasn't able to do as a member state that it can now do, you know, now the, now the government is quote-unquote free, the UK is free. So I think the debate within the Tory party is about substantive versus symbolic divergence. And, you know, you've got pragmatic Eurosceptics on one side and, uh, and the more ideological Eurosceptics on the other. And that's a debate the Tory party is going to be having with itself. I, th- I think for some time to come, what they're absolutely clear, I think, about is not wanting to replicate what I call kind of shadow membership. No, you you, you replicate the kind of the fora and the institutions that were uh, uh, kind of very present in membership. Now we're a non-member state, and I just think they're very nervous about the perception of that, how that will look. So that's why I think you know you can't really you can't really create a context for very elaborate foreign or security policy cooperation. I don't really think. You can build in a meaningful way on the economics of the deal because then you effectively do put the government back on a trajectory to the customs union in the single market. Why the hell would they want to do that? They just spent you know, four years negotiating our exit. So the Tories can't do it. Um, and, you know, that means whether it's this government or the next government under a different leader, I think, you know, under that time frame, unlikely. I agree with Charles that I don't think Keir Starmer and the Labour Party can do it. You know, Starmer wants to be prime minister and has a ruthless focus on that question. And that means he needs to win back the red wall. Winning back the red wall uh, means uh, certainly kind of not going back on the pledges around free movement, but also, you know, kind of more formal, uh, closer links with the EU. He's got to be very careful, I think. You know, he was obviously the head of the referendum and remain contingent of the of, of, of the Labour Party when he was shadow Brexit secretary under Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, the Tories want to paint him as, as an Islington Ramona. There's one sure way in which, you know, he's almost guaranteed not to become prime minister. And that is if the Tories are successful in painting that picture off him. So, you know, that's why he's being, as Charles has said, and I agree, you know, very careful about what he is and isn't willing to do. Maybe at the margin, tweak the deal, but nothing, nothing fundamental, nothing fundamental, which means, you know, I, I think across, you know, the, the the various permutations of what a plausible government may be in 2024, the Tory majority, Labour minority, Labour majority, very hard to see a referendum on uh, Europe taking place. A referendum on Scotland, however, as I've said earlier, is entirely conceivable. And that, I think, is going to be the big political question the UK is grappling with now. Not about Not about our relationship with Europe but about the fundamental integrity of the union. That's the big political hot potato. That is the mess that needs now cleaning up, and there isn't a good answer to it, I think. Finally, following on from what Midge said about the future, he, Midge, is, Midge and I agree Britain's not going to rejoin the EU, but I think we'd also probably agree there's massive uncertainty about Britain's future relationship with the EU. i just summar, summarise it very briefly. There are five questions we don't know the answer to. Will, will uh, Britain choose to diverge from EU rules or not? We don't know. Second, will future governments led by Keir Starmer or somebody else try and improve the quality of the, the, the terms of the deal we've got to get an economically closer relationship. Thirdly, will we be in non-stop acrimonious legal disputes with the EU using the dispute settlement mechanism? We'll actually have quite a friendly relationship based on high-level contacts among and chats amongst the, the EU and the UK leaders. Fourthly, 
will we choose to have some structured relationship on foreign and defense policy? The agreement we got gives us nothing there at all. I think we almost certainly will because both sides will want it. And fifthly, as Midge already alluded to, is the Northern Ireland Protocol stable? Is this new frontier in the Irish Sea for goods passing from Great Britain to Northern Ireland really sustainable politically, given how much the, the DP in Northern Ireland really don't like it? And the answer to all those five questions depends on the state of the Conservative Party. If the Conservative Party remains dominated by nativists and nationalists, uh, who, who think it's a good way to win votes is to bash Brussels, then I think we know what the answer to those questions will be. But if, if the more moderate people who do still exist in the Tory party come to the fore and regain leadership, perhaps through somebody like Rishi Sunak, who's a relatively moderate person, though a Brexiteer, uh, then I think we can have a much more harmonious, less acrimonious relationship with certainly what I hope for in the future. So, Francois, what did you think of this uh, retrospective? Um, but there's a lot to pick on. First of all, I think if it's important, we go a little bit on the referendum itself. Um, because I, I've been looking back at it over the past few months. And there's a few things that, that really, really strike me. And, and, and Midge and Charles touched about, a little bit about it. It's a lack of passion there was in the Remain campaign. Um, now, I invite people to go and read um, Craig Oliver's report of, of a campaign. Craig Oliver was very close to Cameron. He, he ended up being the campaign communication uh, director of the Remain campaign t- back in 2016. And essentially what he argued is they had analyzed uh, the British population and that is kind of neat target demographic group, which is like 20% of the, of the population, which was the kind of heart versus mind voters. Um and, you know, heart versus head voters. And essentially, you know, these were people who had this kind of romantic vision of the UK, but also kind of um, understood that economically remaining in the European Union would probably be the best option. So these were the target people. And so they didn't want to scare these people with a kind of very romantic case for the EU. But I still think if you look at this campaign, it was very stale, very, very stale. There's no no strong case for belonging to the EU. And, and actually, one of the strongest moments I thought of a, of a remain of a remain campaign was during a question time. So question time is a big uh, TV show for politicians. During a question time before the referendum, David Cameron is is um, um, gets this question asked from some someone in the in the in the in the audience, saying comparing him to Neville Chamberlain. You know Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister who had famously uh, tried to peace Adolf Hitler before you know World War Two. And you can see all of a sudden the kind of, you know, it was a pretty stale performance by, by Cameron even then. Uh, but he got angry. He, he got passionate. Mm. And he said, I'm not Neville Chamberlain. I am, I, am, I am Churchill. And just like Churchill, I am not giving up on European democracy. I, we are not quitters. Um, he had this kind of very strong rhetoric. And this is one of the rare moments where they actually the audience kind of cheer, cheers him. Um, um, you can't win a football match when you're not on the pitch. It's something he said. And he just had all this kind of passion energy all of a sudden. Uh, it was really strange, and it was, it was completely absent for the rest of the campaign. So, I, I think that's something that's something that kind of um, pro-European figures have to understand. Yes, the, the EU isn't a very popular thing, um, and you probably need to make on kind of a very rational and uh, and and uh, economic-based argument to a large extent. But if there is no passion; you will get end up being overrun at some point. I think that's something you need to keep into account. Yeah, and uh, I, I do remember. I think the um, the um, the uh, um, the hook to uh, Craig Oliver's book 
was a long form essay that he wrote for a political for the European version of political. I think they do have a UK version uh, by now, which I think Tom Tom McTague used to edit. He, he's now the Atlantic, but I think at the time Craig Oliver run uh, ran a long form essay. Uh, I think titled "How We Lost," hmm. um, and uh, and that that was kind of the hook to, to his book. And uh, you know, I, I do I, I do think that so much of what happens in the UK finds a reflection in some of the kind of the TV um, antics. Uh, I think it's a very telegenic society as a whole, but particularly the political class has a way of um, of uh, enacting uh, some, some of the uh, fractures within deep uh, within British society on TV. And I think question time is one example and you're, you're right to mention it. I think that, I think what you're alluding to was a special edition of question time, a, a debate that was held ahead of the referendum where I think um, it was very interesting that you mentioned David Cameron getting passionate. I do think that he wasn't uh, on, on a, 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 at a general level. I think he wasn't very passionate generally as a leader. Um, but what, when he did become passionate in the specific instance you mentioned, it was on, on a negative, uh, negatively passionate uh, tone, as you mentioned. And I think as, as, um, as you know, as um, inspiring as the, the Churchill, um, uh, parallel is I think there there's not there you have to you have to recognize that even in those kind of key passionate moments of the remain campaign it remained very much a, a negatively passionate case that David Cameron made um but what what I and I just I I do remember uh going back to the point about uh British society being being very telegenic I, I do remember another um Famous moment on question time. I believe the uh, day after the referendum, when Patty Ashdown, who had been uh, Lib Dem leader, I think in the '90s, but he was at the time a sort of a, an unofficial chairman of the Liberal Democrats, and he, the uh, staff at, at question time, brought him a. Uh, he was sitting on a panel the day after, sitting on a question time panel the day after the referendum. They brought him a uh, hat-shaped cake because he had said. That if they lost the campaign, he would eat his hat. What's what's the expression? He would eat manger son chapeau, right? He would. Yeah, eat exactly. his hat. They, they get, the staff, uh, David Dimbledy, who I think chairs the question time, his staff brought him a, a hat shaped cake, and uh, he didn't eat it obviously on on live TV, but I think he took it home. <laughs> so I, think, I, I thought that was very gracious to give him at least a, a cake you know um yeah i might have just given him a, a hat and maybe a bit of salt on it or something yeah or maybe like splash the cake on his face or <laughs> which is <laughs> yeah like but um I, I do think you're you're onto something really interesting because it uh and which i think was also kind of the spirit of the episode as a whole is trying to draw lessons and trying to retrospectively learn things as we move forward on our side of the channel with the supranational project, because there is a larger point to be made that I think any future um, politicians campaigning on the remaining side, because I do think there will be future EU referent membership referendums in other countries, but what the remainers I think have to learn from David Cameron's experience is that you have to work in advance and you have to build a narrative because yeah. to, the, to, to this point, I think in large, and this is a point that Chris Christopher Caldwell made in, in our uh, last episode on Italy is that the pro-Europeanism you see is never it, it cannot be a positive argument with the with the narrative that we have. You have to work to change the narrative, and then you will be able to campaign positively. And that's what that's what the that's what the remainers weren't able to do because they 
called a referendum when the narrative was so negative they hadn't worked on it um so, you know it never really kind of worked to, to shape the the you know the, the sentiment and the imagination of the british people on the on the european question and to, to so i think there is a larger point and um i i i want to get your thoughts on something really important I'll, I'll sort of open up a pandora's box we don't have to delve on it too too extensively but i, I do want to get your thoughts on something that we only um only uh tangentially touched upon in the episode which is the issue of the vaccines because what you're seeing at the moment i i do think on our side of the channel uh um uh you know people that are starting to write and speak pretty openly uh even within the sort of the bureaucracy against the hyper regulatory spirit of the eu because in, in a lot of ways the vaccine debacle that we saw a few weeks back with ursula von der leyen the president of the european commission utterly botching the vaccine yeah. rollout, it was just, it was, it was yeah. insane what a failure this was. So I think a lot of people are retrospectively looking at Brexit and saying, you know, they, they did have a point and uh, obviously compounded with the success uh, of the UK with its COVID-19 strategy. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. So I had this conversation with a friend the other day. Um, and essentially, we're having a debate whether we would see the UK in the EU moving on from the Brexit tensions over the next few months um, because they had a lot of common interests, you know, France and in, in the UK on security, uh, Germany and Britain maybe more economics. So there's, there's a lot of kind of interests uh, that could align for both these countries and there's a, there's a willingness to keep the, the UK within kind of larger European uh, sphere. In the other cases, well, Actually, it's too early for that because both sides will still need to show that they want Brexit. Um, they want to show that they want Brexit and they don't want to look, make, give the impression that either Brexit was a failure, that'd be really bad for Boris Johnson, or that uh, Brexit was a total success, which would have been a disaster for, for, the, for the EU. And so what I think we've seen over the past few weeks has been a kind of you know, kind of a um, when the game when the game is over and everybody's trying to influence the narrative of what the game was. I think that's what we're seeing to some extent is everybody's trying to change the narrative of Brexit by having this kind of uh, third half fight in the pub. And I think that's to some extent what's going on here is both both the EU and the UK want to show the other side, want to show more importantly to their domestic audience that they've won Brexit. Because one mm. of the reasons, you know, it was never kind of fully admitted, but one of the kind of reasons behind the EU's motivation is they couldn't let away, they couldn't let the UK away with, you know, the, uh, both, uh, both um, um, you know, the expression, have your cake and eat it. Um, the bien. EU couldn't let the UK have its cake and eat it, you know, the famous, famous, famous cakeism in, 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 in Westminster. And, <laughs> uh, and so, so they wanted to take their revenge uh, to some extent. And, and, and I think it, it became a bit too obvious, a bit too blunt. Um, you know, again, there's plenty of technical uh, technical matters which can't be overlooked. But deep down, there was there is on both sides a lot of PR going on here, which is we've won Brexit and we are ready to play the PR war for a little bit longer, uh, and then maybe we'll build a future relationship. Yeah, and I, I I think that's so important. That's something we ought to keep in mind as as kind of the two sides try to win the, the post Brexit narrative, as you've said. Uh, that that really uh, that really closes a very interesting episode uh, on the whole. I I think, and uh, we would really encourage our, our audience to head over to our platforms and give us a like and a and a nice review, as that really helps us uh, move the show forward. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>